In our Wednesday small group this week, I handed each person a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper were five words. The words were beauty, pain, exciting, weird, and annoying. Everyone was supposed to write one word that described beauty, pain, exciting, weird, and annoying. So when people did that, they wrote their one word, folded the piece of paper, we put them in a hat. Then we redistributed these pieces of paper. So now I've got a paper that has somebody's definition of beauty and pain and exciting and weird and annoying. The instruction was you have five minutes to pick one of those words and write a poem about it. Okay? Now I see some people in my group getting nervous. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to read those poems. I've actually shredded them, don't worry. Uh, but here's, here's the exercise. What I wanted to do is find out how people would craft these poems and what of those five choices they would choose. Any guesses on which of those five things people chose to write about? Beauty and pain. Beauty and pain were the two most popular things to write poems about. Two of the most emotionally charged of the five options. And what I also found was that there were two styles of poems that emerged. Two people in our group did acrostics. So one person under beauty, somebody thought the, the beautiful description was community, that community is beautiful. So somebody wrote an acrostic, they wrote community vertically, and for each of the letters in community, right, they wrote a word that described the beauty of community. Two people did an acrostic. The rest of us did rhyming poems. Our poems were typical English literature poems. They had rhyme and meter. Rhyme and meter. Here's an example of rhyme and meter from Geoffrey Chaucer's uh, Canterbury Tales. This is the Knight's Tale. It's been a while since I've read this, so I'm probably going to butcher it. But i got to shoot for the Middle English because it, only, it sounds so much better. Willem is old stories telling us there was a duke that had Theasis. Of Athens he was lord and governor, and in his time switch a conqueror. That greater there was none under the sun, for many a rich country had he won. What with his wisdom and chivalry, he conquered all the reign of Femini. You hear the rhymes. You hear the rhymes in there? What with his wisdom and chivalry, he conquered all the reign of Femini. There's rhyming and there's meter. Did you notice the da 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 iambic pentameter for all you English majors, which I'm not. That's all I know about poetry. But that's a typical English form of a poem. You've got rhyme, you've got meter or acrostics. There's there's some others as well. But my group chose those two things. I used to think poetry was an extremely restrictive way of writing. Like, why would I conform myself to something where I had to make up rhymes and meter or an acrostic or something like that? But then I, I started thinking about it, and if there's actually something worth writing about, what a poem can do or poetry can do is force us, because there's, there's boundaries on it, it forces us to use style and vocabulary that we wouldn't normally think of. Like if you're doing an acrostic, you have to write how community is beautiful using the, the, each letter in the word community. It forces you to think of words that start with those letters. You can't do it outside those bounds. And what you end up doing is using maybe words that are more rich metaphorically, words that have double meaning because you have less words to work with than if you get an endless essay to write. So why the poetry lesson this evening? 
good question. Because this evening we're going to begin our summer series in the Psalms. For the past 14 months, if you're a visitor with us, we've been in the Gospel of John. And we've been getting accustomed to the, the style of writing that John presents. He's telling us of the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But now that we're switching to the Psalms, we're in a completely different style of writing. The Psalms comes from the Greek word psalmos, which is translating this Hebrew word mizmar. And mizmar means to sing or to pluck, a musical instrument. So these Psalms that we have in our Bible are meant to be chanted or sung. They're poetic. The Psalms, as we have them in our Bible, there are 150 of them, have been actually a collection of individual psalms, and they were collected over a period of roughly a thousand years. And somewhere around the 4th or 5th century BC, the psalms were collected and organized into the book of psalms that we have now. So here's an example. This book uh, Tim and Karen gave me at my graduation is called The Valley of Vision. And in this, if I were to ask you what this is, you would say it's a book, right? It's bound, it's one volume. But in this book, there are generations worth of Puritan prayers and devotionals, all collected from different people, from different times and places, and then organized in one volume and actually categorized as well. So there's, there's devotions and prayers about God's person, about Jesus the Son, about the Holy Spirit, about uh, forgiveness of sin, and there's even one that I pray about preaching before I come up to preach. In the same way, the Psalms are a collection of individual Psalms from many different authors that were at some point, 4th or 5th century BC, collected and organized into five books, mirroring the five books of the Torah. There are seven different genres of Psalms, and I'm going to say these, you don't have to remember them now. Hymns, laments, thanksgiving psalms, psalms of confidence in God, psalms of remembrance, wisdom psalms, and kingship psalms. And over the summer, we're going to be hitting the different genres of these psalms. For thousands of years, the psalms have formed the very heart of Jewish and Christian worship. In fact, if you just were to open your Bible to the middle, you're probably going to hit the psalms. It's not only the heart of worship, but it happens just to be the heart of our book as well. And like a, a, an ancient hymnal, the psalms give voice to almost every human emotion under the sun. Great joy, deepest sorrow, repentance from sin, and everything in between. So as we engage in the psalms this summer, we do so with a heart of worship. And this evening we're going to focus our attention on Psalm 1. So would you stand with me as I read Psalm 1? How blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a, a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. But they're like chaff which the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we invite you to 
open your word to us, Lord, that it be more than ideas and words this evening, but that we would encounter you, the living God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being among us and for opening our hearts and minds and spirits to this word. Amen. You may be seated. So, why Psalm 1? I mean, it, it kind of sounds a little bit boring. And I'm not just picking Psalm 1 just because it's the first psalm. Psalm 1 is actually the prologue, in, in a way, for all of the psalms. In fact, one scholar said the 149 psalms that come after Psalm 1 are really just an exposition on Psalm 1. Psalm 1 sets up the entire theology, the entire vision of the book of Psalms. So, it's pretty important that we wrestle with Psalm 1 before we move on to the rest over the, the weeks to come. Now, you remember I said there were seven genres of psalms. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It's a wisdom psalm. So it's, it's real similar to, say, reading Proverbs. And like a wisdom psalm or like the Proverbs, we know two things about how we can approach this psalm. First of all, it can be approached as a proverb. So it's not so much a promise of God. If you do these exact things, you're going to get these exact results. But it's really, really good advice. In fact, it's a bit idealistic. When you read through Psalm 1, it appears to say, hey, if you just do the right thing, life will be smooth sailing. It kind of sounds like that. But you know what's really interesting to me is where Psalm 1 is placed in the rest of the Bible. Do you know the book that comes right before Psalm 1? Book of Job. It's the last time you look through the book of Job. The book of Job is about Job, this righteous man who no one can find fault in. And yet, deep suffering. The guy loses his whole family, his whole house, all of his livestock, and then takes on this incredible physical disease and burden. In the end, he does not get any answers from God. He encounters God, and you know what he finds out? That God is bigger and better than he could possibly imagine. So, if you read Job right before Psalm 1, you know something's got to give. Job was, of any human being, the closest guy to living Psalm 1 as anybody else I know. And yet, he incurred all of this suffering. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. The second thing Psalm 1, being a wisdom psalm, can tell us is that it's entirely practical. Proverbs and wisdom psalms are practical. So all you guys out there that say, oh my gosh, he's quoting poetry already and doing poetry lessons. This is going to be a long week. Um, say, take heart. This is going to be practical. It's practical advice for a right relationship with the living God. Now, I said before that this genre of psalms means that we're going to encounter uh, different kinds of imagery. And one of the dominant images in Psalm 1 and in Scripture as a whole is the image of two paths or two roads. In fact, it's one of the dominant images in literature and in film and even in popular sayings. Sorry guys, here's another poetry quote. Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Not Taken. Here's the last stanza. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in the wood and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that's made all the difference. Okay guys, Matrix, Red Pill, Blue Pill, there's the two ways. Star Wars, 
Dark Side of the Forest, Light Side of the Forest, I'm just throwing you a bone here. That's not poetry. It's a great film, though. And then there's the proverbial fork in the road. How many, have, how many times have we come to the fork in the road in our own life? Scripture is full of these types of images. In fact, Jeannie just read uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of them from Matthew chapter 7. The juxtaposition, the juxtaposition between the narrow road that leads to life and the broad road that leads to destruction. There's the tree that bears the good fruit and the tree that bears the bad fruit. There's the one who listens to Jesus and obeys. Or there's the one that listens to Jesus and does not obey. The one who builds his house on the sand and the one who builds his house on the rock. And these metaphors, these metaphors of tales of two roads or two ways are very practical. They touch us in a way because to be human is to have to make choices. To be creatures of free will means that we are constantly having to choose. It's one of the blessings and curses of being free to make decisions. Psalm 1 is a tale of two roads. And the first two verses outline these two different paths. One road leads to blessing and the other to destruction. Again, I said it was practical, right? It doesn't get much more practical than that. You've got blessing on one side, destruction on the other. Now just a quick word on blessing, because I think we, we get this one mixed up a lot. It's the Hebrew Asherah. And sometimes Asherah is translated as happiness. Happiness does not do Asherah justice. Happiness is not strong enough a word. Other times we simply translate Asherah as blessedness. But I think that blessedness has come with uh, a lot of baggage in our culture in the United States. I think it's been hijacked. I'm used to hearing the athlete on TV with the $100,000 gold and diamond studded cross necklace who says how blessed he is for scoring the touchdown. I'm not sure that that's what Asherah means. I'm not sure that that's the, the meaning of blessedness. Here. Here's what N.T. Wright has to say about what it is to be blessed. Happiness is simply a state of being for a human. It's a self-contained unit. You might, in principle, attain happiness on your own and develop it for your own sake. But here's blessedness. Blessedness is what happens when the Creator God is at work in someone's life and at work through someone's life. Blessedness, blessedness is what happens when the Creator God is at work in someone's life and at work through someone's life. So let's take just an extreme example that everyone can think of. Uh, the late Mother Teresa. Here is a woman who we know from her diaries experienced depression. She was never rich, wealthy. Um, she lived with the poorest of the poor. But this is a woman who was blessed. She was used by God. Blessed by God. I would argue that, that Mother Teresa is more blessed than some of the, uh, than a person who doesn't know God or is shallow on the inside and has every material thing in the world. Blessed, to be blessed is more about God's grace in our life than about earning happiness or comfort. So you can't earn blessedness. Blessedness is a, is a result, it's a byproduct of choosing a way of life. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the road of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now you remember how I said English poetry uses devices like alliteration and rhyme and meter? It uses those things to make a point. 
Hebrew poetry uses some other devices, and we're going to learn about them over the summer. But one of the most common devices Hebrew poetry uses is called parallelism. Parallelism. So parallelism is saying the same thing in a different way over and over again to make its point. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, almost saying the same thing, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Again, reiterating the same point. Three lines of parallelism. In verse 1, we see these three lines of parallelism all saying basically the same thing, driving the point home. And with each line, the description becomes more and more intense. So in line 1, the psalmist tells us that the blessed person does not seek advice or seek counsel from the wicked. And again, I don't know... In our, when I think of wicked, what immediately comes to mind is like wicked witch, right? Or just somebody so depraved and evil, like this evil scheming person with always dressed in black with a cape or something. But in, in Hebrew, I mean, it, wicked just means a person who does not organize themselves around God, does not consider God first, does not consider His word first before making decisions or living their life. I know it sounds pretty harsh, but that's how it's translated. So the next line intensifies. Now the person is no longer just walking with the wicked, seeking their counsel, but this person is actually standing, standing in the road of sinners. This word road or way is always a, a metaphor for a way of life. So if you see um, uh, the line says, uh, blessed is the one who does not seek the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners, it means is not abiding in that lifestyle. The blessed person doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners. And now it gets even more dire. Sit in the seat of scoffers. Those who are not only seeking the advice of the wicked and now really comfortable living in that state, but now this person is actually owning this wickedness and encouraging others to be wicked as well and actually antagonistic against those who try and follow God. Having two small children, we read children's books all the time. And uh, the story of Pinocchio immediately came to mind when I thought of these three lines. At first, he, you know, he's this marionette that comes to life, and he's with his father, Geppetto. And Geppetto actually one time sells the coat off of his back to get Pinocchio's school book. So he can go to school, and Pinocchio skips school, and he does all these mischievous things. And then he comes back. So he, at that point, he's just kind of walking in the counsel of the wicked. He gets influenced a little bit. He comes back to Geppetto. He says he's sorry. He tries to be a good boy, doesn't he? And then he goes out, and he meets those wicked people again. And, and then he starts to get into cahoots with them. He does a little thievery. He makes, gets the five gold coins. And now he's, he's enjoying this, this happiness, false happiness of standing in the path of sinners. And eventually, what happens to Pinocchio? He becomes something other than himself. He becomes a donkey. He becomes a donkey. He becomes so comfortable. Now he's sitting in the seat of scoffers. He's actually recruiting others for his, his gang of thieves. And what he thought was bringing him happiness is actually enslaved him. It's make, it made him become something else than he was before. The psalmist is warning us that the fate of those who try and organize their, their lives without God 
have the same fate. They'll become like, like chaff that is blown away by the wind. This is a, a common for agrarian culture. You'd, you'd go up to the top of the windiest hill, you'd take your grain and you would beat it on the threshing floor. The heavy grain would fall to the threshing floor and then the chaff would blow away in the wind. The grain is the only valuable part. And so that's what the psalmist is saying, is that the evil one who doesn't, who doesn't trust and obey God is like the chaff, just gets blown away, won't stand in the day of judgment. Then the road of the blessed is revealed. The one who is blessed delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Do you meditate in the law of the Lord? Do you delight in the law of the Lord. You know, to me it sounds not only difficult, but it sounds really boring. Delight in the law of the Lord. You know, it probably sounds difficult and boring because if you're like me, you often misunderstand what law means here. We often think of the nitty-gritty laws like don't wear clothes with two kinds of you know, material in them or something from Leviticus. And that word law here actually has four shades of meaning. And let me just flesh that out a little bit. Because I think the law is worth delighting in. First of all, the Hebrew word behind our English law here is literally Torah. So it's not just law code, but it's the entire Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. So yes, there is... Uh, there is a law in there. Leviticus is included in the Torah. But more than that, the Torah is the story of God. The story of God's creation. And then after the fall of, of mankind, it's God's gracious acts of covenant and, and picking a man named Abraham and saying, I'm going to save the world through your family. Let's make a covenant. And time and time again and throughout the Torah, mankind fails on his end of the covenant. And God remains faithful. God remains faithful every single time. The exodus is in the Torah. The deliverance, the formation of the nation of Israel. And so, I can see how delighting in that story could be possible. Delight in the law of the Lord. Delight in His story of creation and rescue and redemption. Second... The law is the law. Laws are worth delighting in. Now, I know sometimes you think, how dry could law be, like looking at all this law code? But consider this. When compared with the ancient peoples of their day, ancient Babylon, Egypt, Sumer, the Israelite law code is incredibly, incredibly humane. There's the year of Jubilee in which debts are canceled, slaves let free, the land is laid fallow so it can rejuvenate. There's the gleaning of the crops for the poor. So you come through and you, and you harvest your crops and whatever's left on there, you don't go take every last head of grain. You leave it there so that the poor and the needy can come through. The foreigner can come and glean from these crops. You know, I think we'd be a lot further along as a society if we practice some of those laws. Delight in these good laws. There's much to delight in. Third, the law came to mean the whole of Scripture. The whole thing. So, delighting in the entire story of God. Not just the first five books, but the, the writings and the prophets. And now we have the, the New Testament of Jesus the Christ in the early church and seeing the, the things that God has done. That's worth delighting in. And the fourth shade of meaning for 
this word law is, of course, when we delight in the law, we're not delighting so much in the law as the lawgiver. As the lawgiver. When we see these amazing deeds and these amazing acts and these amazingly um, humane instructions for us, we see the heart of the God who made this law, who made the story, who includes you and I in it. And the result of delighting in this law is life. It's like a tree planted by canals of water. Again, a very important metaphor for an arid climate like Israel, where water is sparse. Notice that the tree doesn't, get, doesn't plant itself. It gets planted by canals of water. The use of the passive voice reaffirms the idea that you can't earn blessing. That's not what this psalm is about. This psalm is not about, all right, let's go get them, team. Let's go try and be better people so that we can have this blessed life. This psalm is saying that as we delight in the Lord and His law, His goodness, His story... We will be like trees planted by water. He will take us and put us toward the source of life. I think oftentimes we think of God as a celestial vending machine. We put in enough right behavior and we expect to get out a certain level of life, a certain comfort in life. That's not the biblical story at all. The biblical message is not one of earning God's favor. It's about how to enjoy God's favor that's already out there for us. The question is never, is God on my side? It's never, is God on my side? The Bible never asks that question, is God on my side? Let me tell you, God is on your side. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He gave himself on the cross for us. That screams, I'm on your side. So the Bible never asks, is God on my side? It always asks, am I on God's side? Am I on God's side? Do I delight in His law, in His way, in His story? Or do I enjoy more the counsel of the wicked and standing in the road of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers? It's a tale of two roads, and we must choose. And I don't know about you, but when I consider the two roads, I want the good road. I want the one that leads to blessing. I want to be the guy that delights in the law of the Lord all the time. But I never make it on that road very long without taking a detour over to the other road. You know, it's telling to me that the psalmist... The psalmist sets out these two roads. The blessed person doesn't walk with the wicked, right? So in my thinking, okay, he's going to do an opposite thing. He, the, the blessed person doesn't walk with the wicked, so he must walk with the righteous, right? That's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says the person who's blessed doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord. And this was confusing to me. I thought, why wouldn't it be, don't hang out with the wicked, hang out with the righteous? And then I realized what it is. We'd have nobody to hang out with. We'd have nobody to hang out with. You're looking at me, you're not looking at a person who's righteous all the time. I'm sorry, I'm not looking at people who are righteous all the time either. It's just the way it is. 
the most pure thing and what he calls us to the opposite of hanging out in the counsel of the wicked is delighting in the law of the Lord you know there's only one person who ever fully lived out Psalm 1 there's only one who could live out Psalm 1 and that's Jesus the Christ it's no wonder that he picked up on this imagery from Psalm 1. Of course, you know what he says about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know what he said about water? He said, I am the living water. Where we fail, Jesus has succeeded. Where we fail, Jesus has succeeded. So how do we delight in this law? We delight in the one who not only made it, but the one who fulfilled it. He's the road, and through faith in him, we are planted next to streams of living water. Which road will you choose this evening? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in, that comes in so many shapes and sizes. Thank you for the, the freshness of the Psalms and just a different style of writing. We thank you for uh, the way that this Psalm, as much as it convicts us and shows us, wow, we're really not walking the right road. It leads us into your grace. It pushes us into your hands. I thank you for the privilege of living on this side of history, this side of the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you've walked the road of the righteous. And that you've made a way for us to know true life through you. Not based on our performance alone, but based on our faith in you. And as we come to know you and to trust you, not only as forgiver and savior, help us to know you and trust you as Lord, as the one who has our best in mind and calls us to a new standard of living. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to walk in righteousness, that you would help us to delight in your law, to delight in your heart. Help us as a church and as individuals to see the world as you see it, to love with your same compassion, and to be willing to sacrifice. To lay down our agendas and our striving for comfort in order to be a blessing to others. 